Just Imagine, a new podcast series by Imagine Theatre. Hello again, how are you? My name is Martin Ballard. Welcome to episode six of this series of podcasts from Imagine Theatre, one of the UK's biggest producer of pantomime and children's theatre. Now, if you've listened to the first five episodes, you'll know by now that we take you behind the scenes at the company, meeting the people who create and star in Imagine Theatre shows. For more information, go to their website at www.imaginetheatre.co.uk. Now, before we start, a reminder that if you've missed any of the previous episodes, don't forget you can catch up with them at any time. In episode four, we met the singer and actress, winner of the 10th series of X Factor, Sam Bailey. This time, I've been joined by the award-winning theatre producer, arts advocate and chief executive at the Eden Court Arts Complex in Inverness, James Mackenzie Blackman. How are you, James? I'm all right, thanks. It's a beautiful day here in the Highlands. Um, So, yeah, I'm looking out of the window onto rolling hills and sunshine. Now, obviously, it's very challenging for everybody during the COVID-19 pandemic, and we'll talk about that in a moment's time. But I want to start with your formative years. It's a far cry from the Highlands because it all started for you in Devon, didn't it? And Plymouth, which is where your love of theatre began. Yeah, that's right. I was um, I was born in Plymouth and um, brought up in Plymouth, and all my family is still there in the southwest of the United Kingdom. I mean, look, there's actually quite a lot of similarities between the organisation that I'm running now and the organisation that that I fell in love with at at the Theatre Hall in Plymouth, both kind of serving both the city community and then bringing people to the venue from uh, more of a rural context. In my teenage years, my family moved outside of the city centre and we were living kind of on the edge of Dartmoor and I was travelling into the city. So, yes, my love and my passion is in kind of is in is in regional venues um and so yes i'm at the other end of the country now um here in the highlands of scotland but yeah there's there's things that connect those two experiences for sure and i guess it was really inspired initially by the youth theater there wasn't it yeah that's right i was um in the theater royal plymouth youth it was called the youth music theater when i started then it became the young company but yeah i had really um transformative experiences um when i was a teenager in that young company making big summer musicals most summers you know i really found my tribe at youth theater and made friends for life i was i was good at school i was academically bright but but school wasn't where i was at my was wasn't where i was happiest i was definitely happiest when i was at at youth theater and by my late teenage years and into my early 20s i just felt pretty comfortable that i wanted to have a career making opportunities happen for for other young people like um that had been provided to me you talk about the friends for life one of those friends for life just happens to be a mutual friend and she told me about bugsy malone and the lost domain and trips to poland amongst other places yeah who's that (laughs) ah i'll tell you that in a moment's time but do do you remember those shows yeah, of course. Really clearly, you know, like I said, you know, those formative years um, in youth theatre and getting, you know, w- what was extraordinary about the theatre or youth theatre back then was that they were really placing young people into a professional theatre context. And um, that's what felt like such a privilege. And, you know, I think I probably in my early teens wanted to have a career as a performer, but then as my teens developed, I just got to discover all these other people that were responsible for making theatre happen. And 
increasingly felt more interested in all of those offstage and backstage jobs than I did than uh, with uh, with the onstage ones. Yeah, it's interesting at the age of 16, because I'm told that you told your career advisor at school that your your dream was to actually be head of an education uh, department or the head of education in general in a building based theatre, which is exactly what you are in effect. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, that's what I told my my careers advisor. And that was really very much about um, recognising that I I wanted a career where I made opportunities happen for, you know, young people, like the opportunities that that have been made for me. So, yeah, that's kind of where I set my sights. And I was lucky enough um, to find myself doing that job at the Lyric Hammersmith in London um, in my late 20s. Um, You know, actually at that point thinking oh gosh you know what 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 am i going to do now um yeah well the the friend for life by the way is sarah barton and yeah she told me how inspired you were by the stuff that you did there and and you actually went on to become executive director at the national youth theater i think following that as well didn't you later on um so that's Mm -hmm. a passion of yours but she also said that you know the support of your parents your mum in particular was incredible you know on those you know early days that journey uh, starting out yeah look i'm incredibly fortunate to have had um a family that fostered and supported my love for the performing arts um my grandfather was in the gilbert and sullivan society and you know going to the theater was a was something that as a family um was a, a a real treat a real thrill and I was you know doing from a very early age you know my very earliest memories are being absolutely terrified of King Rat at Dick Whittington probably (laughs) age sort of four or five at the Theatre Royal in Plymouth and you know being one of those cute kids that went up on stage with Dusty Bin um just before (laughs) the walk down you know so um yeah those are you know really really important memories of mine and you know I'm very lucky to have had um had a family that that encouraged and fostered that passion and did a lot of driving and did all the lifts and yeah and um because of because of the 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 geographical context in which Plymouth existed all the kind of young people were being pulled from all over Devon and Cornwall to be in that youth theatre so I imagine what Sarah's responding to is that most weekends our house would be full of (laughs) young people and kids who'd lived a bit further away that were staying the night between rehearsals. So in those early days, you mentioned uh, Dick Whittington. Was that the very first panto you ever saw? I'm pretty sure it was, yeah. And I um, I remember really vividly being sat in the stalls, um, which was a treat because we would normally sit in the dress circle or the upper circle, but we were sat in the stalls and like, we were quite near the edge of the row and King Rat made his entrance into the auditorium and I was absolutely terrified. I shot under my seat and I think I stayed there for most of the show, um, <laughs> occasionally sort of peering up. And we think, mum thinks I was probably sort of four or five years old at that point. Yeah. Wow. And education obviously continued, University of Liverpool and so on. At what stage did you in your own mind realise, you know, what sort of career pattern you wanted? I Well, I knew from my late teens that I wanted to work in theatre buildings and I wanted to run my biggest ambition was to run an education department in a building-based venue and and actually actually I say that I I kind of had three ambitions in my late teens if I'm perfectly honest one was that I wanted to work in theatre one was that I wanted to be a Blue Peter presenter (laughs) 
<laughs> and the third one was that I wanted to be a head teacher of a school um, because young people in school and education is, is something that I'm, you know, to this day very passionate about. Um, so I, I'm definitely too old to um, to be a Blue, a Blue Peter presenter, but maybe one day I'll, I'll run a school. Who, who knows? Hey, James, never say never. You know, Blue Peter could still <laughs> be an option. Who knows in the future? I think I think that's way off the cards. Greenwich Theatre was the first uh, job, really, wasn't it? Yeah. So um, after university in Liverpool, moved to London, um, desperately trying to find my first job in the performing arts. And um, yeah, I, I in fact, I was working at Topshop in Oxford Circus, which was a completely miserable experience, desperately applying for jobs in the arts. And then, yeah, got got a job at Greenwich Theatre and um, working in the education and marketing department there. And that's where I kind of cut my cloth and, and not long after I arrived at Greenwich they secured quite a significant amount of funding to start a musical theatre academy predominantly for black and minority ethnic young people in South East London and so yeah that project started and that kind of really threw me in at the deep end yeah yeah one thing we haven't mentioned is I mentioned Poland with the youth theatre at an early age mm. but but mm. travel's been key as well and and gaining those life experiences you know for people working in theatre that's invaluable isn't it but you you spent a couple of years working overseas didn't you yeah and actually up until very recently um travel um both kind of nationally and internationally was a really big part of my my role and my job so in the six years that I was at Matthew Bourne's New Adventures you know, incredibly lucky. I mean, New Adventures is a prolific touring company, touring more than any other UK dance company. And so it meant that I would, you know, get to visit most large scale regional theatres across um, the UK once a year. And then when New Adventures wasn't touring in the UK, it was probably touring overseas. So I got to visit some of the world's leading venues from Kennedy Centre in Washington, Armisen Theatre in Los Angeles, Esplanade in Singapore, Shanghai Cultural Square, Sydney Opera House or Art Centre Melbourne. So, um, yeah, incredibly, incredibly fortunate to have had all of those experiences and um, formative without a doubt. Yeah. So as we now know, your career eventually took you north of the border to Eden Court. And of course, you're married to a Scot now as well. But there may be many people listening to this who may have heard of Eden Court, but certainly haven't visited it. They may not know that it has galleries, a cinema, a theatre, a studio and so on. So just give us an overview. It's... um. It's an extraordinary building on the banks of the River Ness in the city of Inverness. Um, it's, it, it spans three centuries. I sort of describe it as architecturally schizophrenic. We have a building and, and um, the, the organisation is called Eden Court because the, 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 the anchor building um, was the original home of the bishop of the region. And the Eden Court is next door to the cathedral. So we have a a building from the 1800s and then that building was attached to a building in the in the late 70s which is our main house auditorium um and then in 2000 and, uh, 2004 eden court closed for a 25 million pound capital project so at that point um all of the public space was reimagined to kind of art house cinemas independent cinemas were added um as well as a studio theater 
two beautiful dance studios that look out onto the river and yeah we've got ex we've got exhibition space for, vi for visual art too and a restaurant and um and a, a bar and a bistro so yeah so it's a it's a really big building i guess some ways that i describe it for people listening in england it's a bit like the a, a lowry in terms of that kind of multi art form one site venue yeah and like any art center any complex any theater like that it has to be and Eden Court certainly is the heartbeat of the community so yeah. how much of an impact was it to you uh, and the people of Inverness and beyond when COVID-19 hit and you had to close your doors yeah I mean goodness it was incredibly difficult and I guess you know the other thing to say to sort of paint the picture of of Eden Court and of our organization is that you know we're not like a, one of those you know a theater that opens its doors at 6:50 in the evening and in flood the people or it's not a building that only starts getting busy at 6:50 um of an evening for a 7:30 show eden court before we closed for the pandemic was open sort of 362 days a year and from nine o'clock in the morning it, it it would be busy um for with people taking part in classes or workshops um and uh, young people getting qualifications people visiting the cafe bar very public building basically um so it was de it was in the way it has been for everyone in the industry it was completely devastating to close and I sat all of the staff down in the stalls on that on that day that we shut our doors and I, you know, like everyone else, vet, you know, genuinely thought it would be six to eight weeks and then we'd we'd get back going again. So to now be sat in 2021, it feels sort of almost extraordinary that we've now passed the one year anniversary. We did get open for eight weeks at the end of last year before this before that big second wave. But yeah, kind of it, it feels like we've been very the building any the building in to, has been close to, to the public for for a long time we've done an awful lot through the pandemic that we're very proud of but um yeah not to not to to be open to the general public has been really really tough and, and again for anybody who's south of the border or uh, is listening to this outside scotland obviously it was slightly different in scotland and and you were in level one which meant that you were ready uh, to open and you did open as you say for eight weeks and so it was a bit of a stop start existence for you and you did actually get funding i think you know through the scottish government you got funding ahead of people in england didn't you yes we did i think i, I mean you could get your research is amazing <laughs> um but yes I think that we did. I think we got Scottish Government announced the Performing Arts Venue Relief Fund. I think it was a, a matter of days before the Culture Recovery Fund was announced. So, yes, we had a little bit of security. There was a window where we had a degree of um, stability and security before colleagues in England. But the, the, the funding model, the recovery model has been very different in Scotland because there's been a number of pots of different scales that we've been able to access as opposed to being... You know, the, a lot of the bigger organisations in, in England have taken receipt of very big chunks of money in one go. And it's, it's, it's not felt like that in Scotland. It's been there's been a lot of, of funding applications and advocacy to do over the course of the last year. And, and certainly it, it would seem and I think you, you've been on the record uh, uh, saying that the culture secretary has been particularly supportive. Yeah, we're very lucky in Scotland um, to have a cabinet secretary in Fiona Hislop who I won't get her title completely right but it's something like economy fair work and culture but Fiona Hislop has been cabinet secretary for culture for a number of years and she's incredibly knowledgeable 
knowledgeable about the sector and about the industry and, the, and about the specific issues affecting both the building-based infrastructure, the touring infrastructure and independent and freelance artists. And um, I've, we all feel incredibly lucky to have landed into this crisis with a cabinet secretary in, Sco- in the Scottish government who understands the industry so well. Yeah, that's definitely um, helped. So difficult times. You, you've obviously spent a lot of time working on different scenarios, what happens if, that sort of thing. But while mm. all that's been going on, uh, the, the Eden Court uh, complex has been a real heartbeat of the community still because you've been involved in all sorts of aid effort, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. And back in March 2020, when the crisis descended, we knew we were going to run out of cash very, very quickly. And this was before the job retention scheme was announced. But we we essentially agreed to enter into a, a partnership with the local authority to support their humanitarian response to the pandemic. And we did that in a number of ways. So our, our box office telephony system, which is web-based, that became an emergency helpline for Highland residents. Our main house auditorium became the humanitarian aid centre to the region so sending out food parcels across the highlands and islands of Scotland to people experiencing food poverty or people who were shielding Um, our engagement team uh, went to support the delivery of teaching and learning in key worker childcare hubs so yeah we we embedded ourselves really um, deeply in the humanitarian response to the pandemic just on a personal note, how challenging has it been for you personally? Apart from anything else, you've got two boys, I think. So homeschooling had to come into it as well, did it? Yeah, I mean, look, I <laughs> I can't... I, I, I've done a couple of interviews now where people have said, like, how has it been for me personally? And I guess what I feel on that really is um, I still feel like I'm we're in the midst of the emergency. We're just in a different moment of it now. We're kind of trying to work out how we recover, at what speed we recover, what's going to be possible when. And um, yeah, it's been personally hugely challenging for, you know, the reasons you said. I've got two little boys, so homeschooling has been huge my (laughs) I've not been furloughed my husband has not been furloughed from his job so we've been balancing all of that uh our jobs and our jobs in crisis with the pandemic and I guess what I feel a little bit is I'm hopeful that in the fullness of time probably not for a year or so there will be a there'll be some looking back and some sort of sort of a realization of my goodness I can't can't quite believe that we got through that or or um processing of it but i i it still feels a little bit early i think yeah whilst it still feels we're in the middle of it there's still much to be decided yet um and and the the so-called roadmap that that governments talk about you know there, there still could be turnings that you miss or junctions that you come up against and have to have difficult decisions made but I know for instance that you're very much involved in in a panel which is coming together together digitally in June on the future of theatre because it's a really good time to look to the future to take stock and and make some key decisions isn't it? Yeah it is and I think that we owe it to the industry and we owe it to the people that are going to be the custodians of the sector in in the years to come to make some of the radical and important changes now when we're rebuilding and it's it's also fair to acknowledge though that with doing things differently becomes a lot of challenge and pain for some but I think it's really important that as we rebuild we do that in a way that starts to deal with some of the significant challenges and issues that we've been talking about for a long time and now we can't avoid getting on and 
and and sorting some key issues out for sure. Yeah, this is a three-day event and, and you'll be talking about all sorts of things, audiences, buildings and so on. So it's a really important gathering of minds, isn't it? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And um, it will be important to talk amongst ourselves, but I think probably the most important conversations that we've got to have as a sector are with audiences and with artists as we, as we begin the recovery. Because, you know, what I feel... Um, you know, sort of without question, is that there'll, there'll come a moment where the public money will run out or we'll be told that that's us, let's get on with it. And um, probably the greatest degree of risk for, for Eden Court and for, for, my, for our, you know, other building-based organisations going forward will be that moment where we, where we have a valid programme on our stages, a programme that we're proud of, and the success and the viability of organisations like Eden Court will be based on whether or not people come or not. Now, one of the saddest times for theatres up and down the UK was when Panto didn't happen. And I saw back in December, your Damon, forgive me, I can't remember his name. He actually yeah, wrote, Steve Wren, yeah. he wrote a love letter to the spirit of Panto, which pretty much summed it up for me. Very emotional time, wasn't it? It really was. I'm so aware because it was my own lived experience of the importance of going to the Panto for families across the United Kingdom. It's such an important moment in so many people's years that the the need to cancel Panto felt momentous, weighed very heavily on my shoulders. So, you know, we're absolutely determined that this year that that won't be the case unless, you know, if government for some reason mandate we need to be closed, we need to be closed, nothing we can do about it. But we are exploring all different types of scenarios um, that will en- enable Panto to happen this Christmas at Eden Court. So three final questions to finish with. James, the first is what overall is your favourite Panto title? Oh, what a great question. What is my favourite Panto <laughs> title? Well, I'll, I'm going to say Cinderella because um, that's Panto this Christmas at Eden Court. It gives some really great opportunity for, you know, beautiful stage spectacle. And um, I really need the people of the Highlands and Islands to come. So <laughs> I'm going to say Cinderella. Okay. Now, the second question is something, whether it be in your career or in shows that you've been involved with, maybe in the youth theatre or even, you know, in present times at Eden Court, when was it not all right on the night? When did something go wrong that you can look back on now and have a laugh about? Oh, my goodness. That's a great question. And what immediately springs to mind is actually is it's actually an experience as an audience member. <laughs> and um, I... I think for a birthday present or a Christmas present from my grandparents when I was in, you know, probably 10 or 11 years old, they bought tickets for us to go and see um, Philip Schofield in Joseph at the Bristol Hippodrome as a day trip. I remember it really vividly. It was a brilliant day. It was a brilliant show. And we we settled back down for act two uh, with our ice creams and the safety curtain wouldn't go up. Um, and we sat there and we sat there and we sat there and we kept seeing the safety curtain going up about three inches, then falling back down. And I was completely in heaven at this sort of onstage disaster. I was fascinated by what was going to happen. And eventually what happened, the safety curtain couldn't go back up. Um, the company came out um, onto the apron of the stage and just sang through act two and um, <laughs> I just was I just adored it so yeah that's the thing that immediately springs to mind for when it didn't go all right on the night wow that's got to be the safest safety curtain ever 
Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay, and, and finally, we've talked about, you know, your love of theatre, and obviously you've been very much involved in youth projects. I didn't mention the 2012 Olympics, by the way, which I think you were involved with as well, but young people, very, very important. So I wanted to know, finally, why Panto is so important to you and is all about engaging with kids. Is that what it is? I think so, but all, I think probably what I love about Panto is the fact that it just brings people to the theatre who don't go at any other time of the year. That's a whole other issue that probably we could do a podcast on. But um, there, I love the kind of the the madness of the tradition. I love how kind of eccentrically British it is in many ways. How kind of people, I love the fact it's kind of completely misunderstood anywhere else in the world. And if you try to explain it to people overseas, as I've tried, they sort of look at you as if you're crazy. Um, And I also really enjoy how as an art form it's continued to evolve over recent years and how that audience has remained pretty buoyant over the decades, really. Um, So, yeah, that's why I love Panto. And and increasingly what I would say about why I love it at the moment is that my boys are seven and four and um, it's a great joy to see how much they love it too. Yeah, and interesting. I don't know whether Panto will even come up when you talk about the future of theatre this summer, but, you know, it has to carry on evolving, doesn't it? Let's face it, times are changing. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, what's great about the Panto producers across the UK is there really does seem to be a, um, a will and a desire to, 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 to make that change happen. Well, you've talked about you know Cinderella this Christmas, and we're keeping our fingers crossed that we'll be able to bring Panto to everybody all across the UK again, hopefully. Um, but in the meantime, what's the roadmap look like for you at Eden Court? Do you have any sort of stages of, of reopening coming up now? Yeah, so we really um, we really want to get open this summer. We for for the two years before COVID, we'd put a huge stretch tent on our lawn and had an outdoor summer music festival and we're determined to make that happen this year. Um, So yeah, the plan is a a summer of outdoor um, music and live events and then to slowly move indoors into the autumn um, and to fingers crossed work towards an absolutely fabulous panto at christmas and the logistics of that are incredible because of the social distancing aspects the wearing of masks the safety and so on i guess most of your time has been spent on zoom meetings and so on trying to organize things like that yeah i think i think uh, i mean today's a good example i think like you're 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 one of nine meetings today or nine conversations um i i'm completely over and bored out of my brain of working from home I can't wait to go back to work (laughs) so um, I think the first minister has said that there'll be a gradual reopening of of offices from mid-June so yeah I just you know I just want to be back at Eden Court um, with my colleagues and with the general public Well, listen, it's been a pleasure. It's great to catch up with you. I wish you all the best uh, for the rest of this year. Hope to see your doors open again soon. James, thank you so much for talking to us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you, James. Well, let me just tell you that that just about brings the curtain down on episode six. Don't forget, you can still listen to any of the previous episodes. So make sure you subscribe through your favourite podcast app. In the meantime, make sure you join me, Martin Ballard, next time for episode seven of Just Imagine, when I'll be talking to television and theatre director, producer, presenter, writer, actor and pantomime dame, Ian Lachlan. I'll see you then. Thank you for listening to the latest edition of Just Imagine, the podcast series from Imagine Theatre. 
and you can find out more by going to www.imaginetheatre.co.uk.